0: Twenty-Minute History is an independent operation made possible with the help of listeners like you. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so through the ACAST supporter feature linked in the episode notes, or by going to patreon.com 20MIN history. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. I'm David A. Bradbury, and this is 20 Minute History. On today's episode, at the risk of sounding like a D tier William Shatner, Joseph Smith was called a prophet. Dum dum dumb, dum dumb. This is Season 1, Episode 5. Let's jump right in. Mormonism is the fastest-growing religion in the West. Now, I know what you're thinking, and no, your AirPods are not playing tricks on you. The Church of Latter-day Saints, according to author John Krakauer, is the fastest-growing religion in the West. I'm getting the sense that maybe you're still not quite believing me, so maybe it'll help if we talk numbers. The Mormon population in the United States is currently greater in number than the individual populations of U.S. Buddhists, Muslims, and Hindus. Additionally, in Utah, where the church headquarters are located, Mormons make up a whopping 62% of the population. And global Mormon membership is estimated by church researchers to be at 15 million faithful. And that means LDS boasts more believers worldwide than Judaism. It's a little mind-boggling, I know, but given this trajectory, we may just be looking at the next major world religion. And as if this fantastic growth over the last two centuries wasn't already sufficiently breathtaking, what makes it even more impressive is that its founder, one Joseph Smith, could hardly have imagined during his life that his creation would ever reach such heights. Smith was alive for just the first 14 years of Mormonism's existence, and in that time a plethora of problems, from apostasy to bigotry, would threaten the downfall of his one true religion. But nonetheless... The new faith did outlive its first prophet, and as a result, there are millions of people today who reflect on his legacy with unending reverence for the man who they believe performed literal healing miracles, heroically defended the lives of his people against angry mobs, led the early Mormons to the promised land, and showed future Mormons the lone path to eternal salvation. In the minds of the faithful, Joseph Smith could do no wrong. Of course, if you're not a believer, your perception of Smith is likely quite different. Indeed, non-Mormon views of Smith, which are too often colored by sources like South Park, commonly hold that the founder of the Mormon church was either a con man or a delusional buffoon who established the least credulous faith of all time. One could say that in this popular imagination, Joseph Smith could do nothing right. Maybe it's just me, but I think it's at least a little curious that two of the most common viewpoints regarding Joseph Smith are so diametrically opposed, and furthermore, I think it's entirely likely that neither of them fully represent the truth of his life, which, in actual fact, lies somewhere in between them. So, given the power of Mormonism in current religious and political trends, as well as the considerable veil of misunderstanding that covers its profit, I think it's only appropriate that today... We try to find that truth. Now, in our fact-finding mission, let's set aside those two extreme narratives to do an earnest examination of all aspects of Smith's life, including the parts that are unequivocally true, the parts where we'll have to speculate a bit, and the parts that are likely fabrications. In so doing, I hope that we can piece together a fairly accurate biography of Joseph Smith. Let's begin, shall we? The all-American prophet was born unceremoniously on December 23, 1805 to parents Lucy and Joseph Smith Sr. Being the third child that Lucy had reared, young Joseph entered the world under less than fortuitous circumstances. Before he reached the age of 12, the family had moved no less than three times around the Northeast. As a child, he barely received a rudimentary education, and in 1813, he survived a gruesome epidemic fever that had swept through much of New England. Joseph did continue kicking, and his family did more permanently settle in Palmyra, New York in 1817. This was an especially vibrant environment for young Joseph to grow up in, as it was one of a few veritable centers for the Second Great Awakening, a period in which religious exploration dramatically increased and dozens of new faiths exploded onto the scene. Obviously, this experience would profoundly influence Smith's later path, but more on that in a bit. Though the family's move to Palmyra may have stimulated Joseph's religious curiosity, it did very little to economically stabilize the Smith household. No matter the size of their harvest, the family just couldn't seem to lift themselves out of a financial hole, leaving Joseph with few resources to call his own as he passed through adolescence. Moreover, his choice of profession did little to ameliorate this situation, as Joseph tried to make a living through scrying. For those unaware of the term, the prophet-to-be would go around regaling local landowners with legends of vast Indian treasures buried all around the area, before then charging them a fee to consult his collection of seer stones and look for the valuables residing in their own backyards. I'll let you take a wild guess as to how often Joseph's searches actually turned up results. If it helps your estimate, I will also insert here that Joseph was arrested and tried for being an imposter in 1826. It was a reputation that he would have to fight tooth and nail to lose when his true life's calling came to him in a series of mystical visions. If Smith is to be believed, the prophet experienced two fantastic meetings with either the Lord or a messenger of the Lord in his mid to late teens. The first allegedly happened when he was 14. While praying in the woods, he was met by God, and when allowed to make an inquiry of the Almighty, Joseph expressed great confusion about all the new religious sects popping up around him and asked which of them he should follow. The spirit responded that they were all abominations and that he should follow none of them. And then the second encounter occurred three years later when the angel Moroni met Joseph in his bedroom and showed him the location of the plates of Lehi, which contained the one true history of God's people on earth. Moroni also supposedly warned Joseph that the time for their unearthing had not yet come, but the next morning Joseph promptly forgot this command and excitedly attempted to remove them from the ground, causing them to mysteriously disappear from his hands. It took four years of visiting their burial site on the hill before Moroni finally allowed Joseph to take the plates home. Next on Joseph's to-do list, translation. The confluence of the plates allegedly being written in reformed Egyptian hieroglyphs and Moroni allegedly forbidding Joseph to allow anyone else to lay eyes on the plates made the process quite strange, to say the least, the Prophet sat with the plates on the floor, put a hat on top of them, placed the seer stones Urim and Thummim in the hat, and gazed into it to receive whatever words came to him. It was a long, tedious process, helped by several different secretaries, among them his wife Emma and a Mr. Martin Harris, but after months and months of this painstaking practice, he had finished his magnum opus. It was an epic tale of the lost tribes of Israel, the Nephites and the Lamanites, and their epic conflict eventually leading to the arrival of Jesus in the New World, and Joseph was determined to tell everyone he could about his discovery. Now, Clearly, whether Joseph was actually linked to divinity and whether the Book of Mormon is actually the interpreted word of God is subject to immense speculation. The account I just gave you is furiously defended by the church, but safe to say that skeptical scholars have their objections. For example, the encounters Joseph described, according to Fawn M. Brody, quote, passed totally unnoticed in Joseph's hometown and apparently did not even fix themselves in the minds of members of his own family. Non-Mormon academics also generally believe that the existence of the Golden Plates as Joseph described them is quite doubtful. And even those historians who do believe they materially existed tend to suggest that Joseph may have made them himself out of tin or lead. And all that's before we even get into the text, which has even more questions surrounding it, including why a book supposedly written by God would borrow so much from contemporaneous writings. But, Regardless of all of that, at the end of the day, your belief or disbelief in these accounts essentially comes down to faith. What we can say for sure is that by 1830, Joseph Smith had finished putting the Book of Mormon down on paper. With manuscript in hand, Joseph began the publication process while simultaneously bolstering the claims in the book by having a total of eight men sign sworn affidavits that they had personally seen the plates of Leahy, or a vision of them, and three more attested both that God had shown them the plates and that he had demonstrated to them the validity of their story. Now, interestingly, all but a few of these men later left the church, but in 1831, their statements helped convince more than a hundred new converts to join the fray, drop everything, and follow Joseph to the promised land. Wide-eyed and optimistic, the migrants set their sights on the small town of Kirtland, Ohio. Kirtland was, by no means, the least successful Mormon congregant city that Joseph tried to establish in his lifetime. It stood for about seven years and was a prominent staging ground for a few key developments. First, the Mormon creed and belief system began to seriously solidify in Ohio, helped along by more than 100 divine revelations that Joseph had published. Second, Smith's position at the head of the church became practically unshakable, aided by his performance of alleged miracles and some authoritarian tendencies. And third, perhaps the most influential evolution for the Mormons' future, a second colony was established just after Kirtland in the new, shiny Mormon holy city of... Independence, Missouri? Despite Jackson County's strategic importance to the Mormons, it being the site of the Garden of Eden, the prophet only occasionally visited independence prior to 1838 as he favored living in Ohio. This preference would become irrelevant, however, when a combination of apostasy, financial mishaps, and anti-Mormon prejudice forced Joseph's permanent move to independence. When he arrived, the reaction of his supporters must have made his spirits soar. The reaction of the locals made his time there short-lived. You see, some Missourians were driven to commit violence against the newcomers, chiefly due to a rift on the issue of, what else, slavery. The attitude of Mormons toward slave ownership was rather confused, and the locals did not take kindly to an influx of non-slave-owning migrants that threatened to throw their society out of balance. As a result, the Missouri militia attempted to chase the Mormons out of the state. And Joseph, to his credit, did everything he could to protect his people and their right to live there, even amassing an army of his faithful and turning himself into an amateur army general. Unfortunately, his efforts did not amount to much. Fearing a forthcoming lynching, Joseph and his followers fled independence just a year after their prophet had arrived. Finally, there was Novu, Illinois and while Joseph was alive, it played host to one of the most prosperous periods in the church's existence. At this point, ostensibly nothing could shake the faith of Joseph's remaining Illinois adherents, and those whose faiths were shooketh were met with the iron fist of excommunication. The church attracted more newcomers as his teachings were shared across the country and across the Atlantic, and most rivetingly, It seemed his words weren't the only thing that he was sharing without restriction, as here we must acknowledge a fact that the church would rather you not know. While in Novu, Joseph began openly practicing polygamy, and while the exact number of wives he had is difficult to pin down, estimates range from perhaps a dozen to almost 50, the youngest of which allegedly was 15. In the interest of fairness, I will note here that Emma Smith furiously denied allegations that Joseph took multiple wives, but her claims are contradicted by an entire revelation Joseph wrote condoning polygamy in 1841. It seems the prophet effectively furnished his reputation as a serial seducer of all women, married or not. And curiously, in so doing he unwittingly sparked a rapid and tragic succession of events that would spell the end of his life. Suddenly, a group of alienated Mormons who were fiercely opposed to polygamy began to speak out in 1844, attempting to bring the prophet's legacy to the ground. The leader, in his typical style, responded with excommunication, but in a step too far, Joseph also decided to hamper their chances of speaking out any further. By burning down the newspaper that had initially published their thoughts, Illinoisans responded to Smith's dictatorial deeds with fury and a bloodlust to rival Missouri's. Governor Ford arrested a fleeing Smith and brought him to Carthage to stand trial, but vigilante justice beat him to it. Joseph was shot to death by an anti Mormon mob in his jail cell on June 27, 1844. The next day, Undeterred by the hatred of the surrounding community, a mass of 20,000 devastated believers attended his funeral. Having completed our examination, what I hope is clear now is that there exist many more nuanced analyses of the Prophet's life than the two I provided you at the beginning. For example, I would argue that Joseph Smith was the spitting image of a quintessential American success story, raising himself up from a poor yet aspirational youth to the prophet of a burgeoning religion, even going so far as to die in the traditional prophetic fashion. I would also say he possessed one of the most imaginative, curious, and talented minds of his time, as well as a ruthless and unacceptable impatience for dissent. And moreover, he had an unparalleled religious talent that allowed him to conjure visions and revelations that would engross the lives of thousands. But here's the thing. That's just my view of him. And the thing I find most fascinating about Smith's legacy is that a person can essentially take away from it whatever they will. I still do not endorse either of the extreme views from our introduction, but there is seemingly room for interpretation regarding every single detail of his life. From his religious inclinations, to his plural marriages, to his leadership style, to his attitude toward apostasy, to his views on Native Americans and slavery, and so on and so forth. I guess what I'm trying to say is, be you Mormon fundamentalist Mormon, otherwise religiously inclined, Mormon apostate, or atheist, I think that upon reflection you'll find that yours and my opinion of Joseph, more so I think than anyone else we've discussed on this show, is profoundly and invariably influenced by who you are and where you came from. And so now that you're equipped with the story of his life, I'd like to close this episode by urging you to draw your own conclusions. Who was Joseph Smith? Who do you want him to be? Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to yet another episode of 20 Minute History. This one marks the halfway point in our season, so I'd like to take a quick moment to thank everyone who's been along with me so far. If you like this episode or any episode, please consider subscribing, leaving a rating, and checking us out on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 20minhistory. As always, a very special thank you to Fawn Ambrody, John Krakauer, Matt Martinick, David Stewart, Anne Taves, and the Pew Research Organization, whose knowledge I borrowed to help craft this episode. And don't forget to come back next week when we'll meet a pilot who broke both the glass ceiling and the color barrier in the sky. But until then, I've been David A. Bradbury, and please stay curious, keep reading, and never stop learning lest you know what repeats itself. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil.